This week on the show, we have NetBSD LLVM sanitizers and GDB regression test suites in the system for you. Uh, we talk a bit about ADA, the language of cost savings. We cover Homura, which is a Windows games launcher for FreeBSD, which is exciting to see. Uh, we talk a bit about the FreeBSD core teams appointing uh, a working group to explore the transition to Git. Uh, we also look a little bit of uh, previously not yet so far filled out OpenBSD 6.6 beta release notes. It's not out there yet, but we might take a look. Uh, we also have some updates from Project Trident and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 316, Git Commit Free BSD, recorded for the 18th of September 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome back to this week's episode of BSD Now, and we have great news for you, as always, from the BSD world. And we start right away with the headlines, uh, which come from uh, NetBSD, so they have LLVM sanitizers and GDB regression tests. Uh, of course, this is over at the NetBSD blog. And there you can find uh, that it's part of their efforts on um, the things we covered a couple of times already of running LLVM sanitizers on their code and find bugs this way. And so as NetBSD-9 has branched, uh, they have asked to finish the LLVM sanitizer uh, integration because they want to uh, get this done. Uh, this work is now accomplished with and uh, the kernel knob, I guess, mklvm equals yes, that build option you can set, which is off by default. And then the distribution will be populated with the LLVM files for ASAN, TSAN, MSAN, UBSAN, LibFuzzer, SafeStack, and XRay. And they also have transplanted the base system GDB uh, to be patched uh, into the GDB repository and managed to run the GDB regression test suite. Woohoo! That seems cool. And they have enhanced and imported the local uh, make sanitizer code that makes the whole distribution sanitization possible. And a few real bugs were fixed and a number of patches were newly written to reflect the current NetBSD source's state. And they also have merged another chunk of the fruits of the Google Summer of Code 2018 projects, which have finished, uh, with fuzzing the user land. And they have a number of commits um, related to that, and they have uh, notes there uh, and individual changes. And uh, all of these mentioned commits, or the ones listed on the website, are backported to NetBSD 9 and will land in 9.0. They have an interesting demo there. It says, as a demo, they've crafted uh, a binding of rump kernel and mk sanitizer with the hung fuzz fuzzer uh rump kernel assisted fuzzing in netbsd uh is uh a little application they have here oh yes yeah i see this yeah sorry i missed that and um yeah that's a good way of uh, seeing what this is used for and how it's used um, the GDB parts, uh, they've merged netbsd distribution downstream to gdb patches into the local gdb tree and executed the regression tests. So there are a number of uh, things uh, there. Uh, they have over 45,591 expected passes and uh, only, or 
3,267 unexpected failures detected this way. And there's a full log available if you are into that, um, you'd want to look at and help out a bit. Uh, comparing it to last time they did it uh, in 2017, so about two years ago, they ran the same thing. Uh, and the number of passing tests was 16,000 instead of 54,000. And the number of failures was 483. This time's higher at 3,267, but the total number of tests has more than tripled in the last two years. Yeah, so of course the code in NetBSD also increased during that time, but uh, it's good to have test cases and making sure that your code runs and doesn't run into any regressions. Uh, they have a small section about the GSOC mentoring. Um, they note that the Google Summer of Code program reached the end and that uh, the mentees were successful in their final reports. So the, one, uh, the first is enhancing syscaller support for NetBSD, part three. I think we covered that already. And the second is adapting Triforce AFL for NetBSD also in the show in an earlier one. I think uh, we've covered part two of each, but not part three. But they're there if you're interested. Oh, these are the final reports. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, uh, they're also mentoring the AFL plus KCOV work by Maciej Grokowski. And Maciej will visit EuroBeastiCon 2019, which uh, we are currently at, if you're uh, listening to that at the moment. Yeah, if you're watching this, uh, the conference starts... Like, if you're watching this when it comes out, the conference starts today, basically. Yeah. And so they speak of that, about their work and the results they uh, gotten out of it. And they also added methods for setting and getting the thread name. Uh, they've reached out to the people from standards bodies and uh, worked on defining the standard approach for setting and getting the thread name. Uh, they've received, uh, received a proper ID of their proposal and are now supposed to submit the text in either PDF or HTML format. Uh, this change will also uh, allow to manage the thread name with a uniform interface of all conforming platforms. Yes, that will be a big thing. Um, watching in... OpenZFS trying to deal with the fact that all the OSs use a different uh, mechanism for naming the threads. Um, now, imagine this is for user-space threads and it won't necessarily apply to kernel threads, but um, yeah, standardizing some of this will be a, a big win for applications, especially if it was something like um, the change that FreeBSD got recently for Postgres to support changing the title much more quickly. Ah, yeah. So that it, it doesn't take as long. Yeah, and helped uh, boost performance. Uh, yeah, they have also a next milestone. They want to keep enhancing the GDB support as well as keeping detect ptrace bugs and addressing them. Excellent. Uh, so all this work was sponsored by the NetBSD Foundation and uh, 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 donations to the NetBSD Foundation help uh, fund and support this uh, kind of project. Next up, we have a very interesting project called Homura, which is a Windows game launcher for FreeBSD. Oh, exciting. Yeah, so it's based on a Linux project called Lut Lutris, uh, which is um, a gaming platform thing for Linux. Uh, but based on that idea, they thought, what would it be like to make a game launcher to play Windows games on FreeBSD? Uh, so once you have it installed, you're able to just select from a list of games and it will take care of launching them for you with the different compatibility settings or whatever that are required to make them work. So they have a nice screenshot here of, uh, I guess that's Counter-Strike Source from Steam. Uh, the dependencies are actually pretty light. It uses uh, curl, bash, p7zip, Xenity, uh, yeah. uh, web fonts, uh, also utils for sound control, and that's optional. 
Wine Tricks, uh, which is uh, basically a repository of little bits required to make wine stuff happen. Uh, Vulcan Tools, uh, Mesa Demos, and the i36 Wine Development version on AMD64, or just Wine Devel on i36. So uh, if you use it to launch Steam, uh, it uses the older Windows XP compatibility and an older version of the Steam client uh, so that more of the online features work. Um, it runs the Blizzard game launcher out of the box, the Origin game launcher for EA, um, again, uses an older Windows XP version, but that doesn't impact performance and you can play your games. Uh, Uplay uh, plays out of the box, although apparently has crashing problems. TeamSpeak works right out of the box. Uh, Anarchy Online runs out of the box. Uh, remember to let the installer create a shortcut or you'll be unable to start the launcher. Um, they called Itch works right out of the box. Uh, Good Old Games Galaxy runs out of the box. League of Legends uh, currently crashes at starting uh, the game client, so they're working on that. And then Wargaming Game Center uh, crashes about 10 seconds after start. Even if the launcher uh, should work, a desired game may not work. Uh, they're currently working on that one, uh, trying to get uh, World of Tanks to work uh, under it. And then they have another one called Grotopia, which works out of the box. They also have a collection of tweaks uh, to get things to work uh, if you're running into app problems, like uh, tweaks for Borderlands, uh, Far Cry, Elder Scrolls, Payday 2, problems with uh, the mouse using Unity, uh, getting World of Warcraft to work. Uh, sometimes they have a problem with sound. Fixes for Gary's Mod if you're trying to use workshop add-ons, etc. Uh, the README also has uh, a bunch of other interesting bits. So yeah. Oh yeah, nice, nice project. Yeah, uh, being able to combine all those little tweaks and hints and compatibility things to make it so you can just click a button and start a game could make a big difference to how usable FreeBSD is as a gaming platform. Yeah, so let's try this out and provide some feedback if you're into that uh, sort of thing. All right, let's look at the news roundup for this week. Uh, we have ADA, or ADA, the language of cost savings, question mark. Uh, this is over at electronicdesign.com. So the article talks about uh, ADA, the programming language, and uh, they open with many myths around the ADA programming language, but it continues to be used and evolve at the same time. While the increased adoption of ADA and Spark, uh, its provable subset, it's slow, it's noticeable. ADA already addresses more of the features found in uh, heavily used embedded languages like C++ and C Sharp. It also tackles uh, problems addressed by upcoming languages like Rust. Uh, there's a recent paper by VDC's research, Chris Rommel, uh, titled Controlling Costs with Software Language Choice, How ADA Can Help, and highlights many reasons why these developers are turning to ADA and Spark, and why you should take a closer look at them. And Chris makes a co very compelling case uh, as to how ADA and Spark can reduce the development costs in any programming environment, not just military and avionics. Ah, and the conclusion from him is development technologies have a profound impact on one of the largest and most viable costs associated with embedded systems engineering, labor. At a time when on-time system de deployment can not only impact customer satisfaction, but access to services revenue streams, engineering team efficiency is at premium. 
Our research showed that programming language choices can have significant influence in this area, leading to shorter projects, better schedules, and ultimately lower development costs. While a variety of factors can influence and dictate language choice, our research showed that ADA's evolution has made it an increasingly compelling option for engineering organizations, providing both technically and financially sound solution. End of quote. Yeah, they have a couple of charts uh, to compare the languages and uh, cost savings there. So it's interesting to see that uh, because we don't uh, hear much about ADA normally or nowadays. I had only ever seen it used for that um, synth uh, thing. Ah, yes, for a dragonfly. For building packages. Uh, and, you know, we talked about just the other week how it was being rewritten in C, so... Yeah, <laughs> but for saving costs, um, we probably have to dig a bit deeper into why that is or what they used as comparison. But if people are interested in that, uh, we have the links in the show notes. Now we get to something interesting. Uh, we have here uh, from the FreeBSD status report uh, some, I mean, the status report in itself is big, but we picked a particular item about the FreeBSD core team appointing a working group to explore transitioning from subversion to Git. Yeah, uh, so it started with our annual developer survey uh, of the 397 developers, 243 took the survey with an average completion time of 12 minutes. Uh, the survey closed on May 13th. Uh, sorry, then we did a public user survey with slightly different questions. Uh, and it was taken by 3,637 users and had an approximately 79% completion rate. Most of the people that started it went all the way to the end. And then based on some of that and just general things in the projects, uh, we decided that we need to look at what it would take to switch to Git. And so we... Uh, Thrust that job upon Ed Mass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to lead that group. Uh, so he's, yes, uh, chairing the group uh, and researching, uh, partly because Ed has been researching this for a while and has presented uh, some of his findings at Dev Summits already, um, including his MeetBSD 2018 talk on the subject. Uh, and so the, the working group is now figuring out um, kind of the how, because it turns out just because we want to doesn't mean it's going to be easy. <laughs> Yes, there are multiple approaches, multiple ways, and this needs to be decided or explored. Yeah, by and them. also making sure that we don't lose any historical data or anything during the transition, making sure we don't lose functionality that we need. Everything going to go smoothly. Yeah, and that's uh, the task that the working group is uh, tasked to do, as we say. And uh, we look forward to them uh, presenting the results, but we also should give them enough time to not rush things and find the proper uh, solution in the time they they get. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, there will still be the question of what Git repo? <laughs> uh, even if we change the source of truth to be Git, it, uh, we still have to also decide where to put that or how that will work. Yeah, the source of truth, as people call it. Um, I've looked at a couple different things there, like... Um, the way the Apache project did it, uh, where I guess there most developers will use GitHub, but there's a non-GitHub way to do it. Um, I can understand why you would take that approach, but maybe it's not the best one. I don't know. Uh, we'll have to see. Yeah, it's too early to tell, um, but the working group uh, has been established and has um, at least met once online, and I'm sure uh, they will consider all the options and the uh, things that people have raised so far and find the uh, next version control system for FreeBSD. 
All right, then we have uh, something from OpenBSD because their 6.6 .6 beta has been tagged, which means that a release is uh, sooner rather than later. Scheduled. When I forget what the release schedule is. Um, I guess it's like May and November or something. Yeah, they're very punctual with that. <laughs> it's twice a year. So, uh, yeah. Um, coming up will be um, next release. Uh, and there's quite a bit in it. Oh, yeah. Uh, we found some preliminary release notes. Of course, they are not finished yet because the release is not finished. Uh, but we get a glimpse of what might be in the release. Of course, this is still subject to change. Um, but uh, we have a couple of items in the list already. Uh, there's also a bit of artwork, but that's from the previous version. Don't mix this up. Uh, this is still from OpenBSD 6.5, as the <laughs> label says there. Uh, but if we scroll down a bit, uh, they have something in there what's new. Uh, they say, of course, improved hardware support, uh, including Clang, is now provided on PowerPC. So people can look forward to that. And then they have some empty sections, uh, but we can just list the headlines, I guess, uh, so that people can kind of guess <laughs> that, this is, that it contains these. Uh, there's IEEE uh, 802.11 wireless stack improvements, always good to have. Um, generic network stack improvements also good uh, they have some install improvements apparently or will have as well as security improvements because it wouldn't be an open bsd release without any security improvements that would be certainly uh, weird so that's uh, their main focus here yeah, they have updates to ntpd uh, to get and set the clock in a secure way even when booting with a system that doesn't have a battery back clock um and then they have the file system buffer cache is now more aggressive in uh, using memory outside of the DMA region, uh, which improves cache performance on AMD64. Um, changes to the BER API used by LDAP uh, and SMPDD. Then MPD. Um, have been moved to libutils so that they are uh, one common set of code instead of being duplicated. Uh, and they've also added support for specifying which device to boot from if you're using their uh, VMD hypervisor. And then a bunch of updates to OpenSMTBD6, uh, lots of changes to LibreSSL3. Uh, I noticed new major versions, so that's probably quite a bit. Uh, and actually, uh, not in our notes, is that uh, OpenSSH 8.0 uh, will also be part of this. Ah, great. Yes, that's always good to see. OpenSSH getting features or bug fixes. Uh, yeah, we can't tell you much about ports and packages because they're still being built. Um, uh, it's very early in the beta process yet, uh, so a lot of this isn't actually filled out yet. Uh, but if you visit this page again in a couple of weeks, I'm sure it will be uh, more fleshed out. But since we're pre-recording this, we had to kind of guess what the features would be. <laughs> Our crystal balls yeah, are usually working quite well. Yes, so if you actually read the URL for this on... The day this actually comes out it will probably say more useful things than what i'm saying today and i'm fairly sure that we'll cover it once it's out in a future episode so we can revisit that page and see <laughs> how our predictions uh, worked out all right uh, switching gears or projects a little bit um, we have updates for project trident uh, they have their 12th uh, or no for project trident 12 update 5 so this is their 12 stable branch which is different than their uh, head branch, which is date-based. So this is stable 12 update 5, uh, which has a couple of new packages, 
some games. Uh, doesn't look like anything especially useful. Some extra ruby gems uh, and so on. A couple of packages are removed. All the uh, OS no ZFS packages are removed. Uh, it's not required anymore. Uh, and then lots of updated packages. So a pretty straightforward uh, update, but uh, you get newer version of FreeBSD 12 stable in Project Triton. Yeah, so that's from the desktop front. And uh, always good to see that uh, these projects are also making progress. And uh, of course, when once a major release comes out, we'll also mention it's in an episode coming in the future. It's time for the BSD bits this week. We have news from Dragonfly BSD. They have some MS-DOS FS updates. Remember that file system? Well, there's actually an interesting comment on the page after. So uh, Tohiro Kusumi has been bringing a whole lot of updates to the MS-DOS FS file system. Uh, I can't tell you the net effect, but I'm sure that they're useful if you're uh, looking for shared disk media, as FAT is sort of the lowest common denominator. But in the comments, somebody points out that all EFI systems boot from a little FAT file system. So suddenly, MS-DOS FS is... Uh, more important as it's part of booting your system. Um, and they had note that part of this is being discussed on the FreeBSD mailing lists. Um, and so, yes, I'm interested in any changes Dragonfly has that might be useful to FreeBSD as well, as we need a the ability to uh, create MS-DOSFS file systems that uh, all the UFI firmwares can read, but also looking at having good support for it so that we can do things like uh, update the FreeBSD installer to coexist with other operating systems via EFI. Whereas right now, the FreeBSD installer in ZFS auto mode, anyway, the part that I did, assumes you want to just give the entire disk over to FreeBSD and it can just do whatever it wants. It'd be nice to teach it that, hey, uh, I bought this new laptop. It has Windows on it. I don't need it very often, but every once in a while I might need that. So I shrunk the Windows partition, and I'd like FreeBSD to just use the rest of the space and to add itself uh, to the EFI partition so I can just use the boot select menu to decide which OS to start. Um, and so, yeah, something I'd like to do, but I have uh, no free time. But if somebody's interested, I'd be uh, happy to mentor. And uh, usually people are, uh, after a couple of uh, mentoring sessions, are uh, familiar enough to be uh, let alone. Uh, remember last week's episode where we talked about VBSDCon and that it had some new speakers who gave their first talk at the BSD conference? Uh, maybe this article was something for them or for future people considering this type of thing. Uh, stand out as a speaker over at the Science Magazine and uh, uh, Matilda Hiss is the author, and uh, she talks about um, her experiences or has some tips about uh, first-time speakers. And uh, she says she had been rehearsing her speech for days, but it was but she was still stressed out. She was in the first year of her PhD, and her previous public speaking experiences had not exactly been successful. The first one, a presentation to a jury of experts for doctoral funding, had ended in a rush because it was too long. Uh, she didn't get the funding in the end. During the second one, the defense of her master thesis in front of familiar benevolent professors, she had been unable to control her shaking voice while giving the uh, impression that she was about to burst into tears. Ooh, oh, that doesn't sound good. Now she has a few hours uh, or is a few hours away from giving her first uh, oral presentation at a conference, practicing the relaxation exercises she had learned for the occasion and hoping she could get through this one without incident. 
And there's a quote here that says, I never would have thought I would someday be so eager to give presentations. Yeah, I remember, you know, during school, giving presentations was this terrible thing that I hated and had a terrible fear of and, and like shaking so badly I couldn't read the piece of paper I was holding because uh. of how nervous I was and so on. Um, and then just a couple years later, uh, when I started teaching, um, I, that one, it helped a bit that I was teaching about FreeBSD so I could walk in and be fairly confident I knew what I was talking about. But once I'd done it a bit, uh, I kind of got comfortable with it. And then, you know, between the, the podcasts and uh, quite a few speaking engagements now, uh, yeah, I, don't, I don't, uh, don't get that worried about it anymore. Yeah, it's it's like a muscle. You train it, and as long as you're not discouraged mm -hmm. from your first failure uh, or say we'll never do this again, it's if you, the more you train it, the, the better you become, and you after a while you figure out what works and what doesn't. So when my turn to speak finally came, I focused on time. I would have to speak fast to present all the information I had planned. Fifteen minutes later, I finally relaxed, proud of finishing on time and speaking with a steady voice. I had no idea whether the audience had learned anything, and I didn't really care because it was over. <laughs> I continued to view my talks this way until about a year later when I made a presentation to a non-scientific audience. Their questions made it clear they had not gotten the message I wanted to convey. Suddenly, I realized these people probably felt the same way I did after watching a disappointing presentation. The speaker was not engaged with the audience at all, and I realized that I didn't want to be that speaker. I wanted to do better. So then they get into the tips. Yeah, so engagement with the audience is uh, probably the next level. Um, but they have the tips. Uh, the first one is uh, curate. To keep your audience tuned in, keep your presentation focused on one main message. Each slide, each word should be carefully chosen to convey that message. You can always prepare additional slides for questions and discussion. Yeah, this I have weird mixed feelings about some things on slides. Um, trying to balance my slides between having enough information that having just the slides can give you the story uh, without necessarily having to have the video of the content. Um, one of the places where I think like HBSDCon kind of gives you the advantage because if you have a whole paper to go in all the details, you can keep your slides a lot lighter. Um, but I do try to, especially at the regular conferences, keep my slides quite dense, but it's important not to just read the slide and to make sure you cover just the, the curated bits that actually matter to people. Yeah. Because some people, when they, or you might have experienced this as well, you sometimes uh, read the slides before listening to the actual speaker, or sometimes you lose, you listen to the speaker, but then you lose uh, kind of track, and then you want to get back to where uh, you are, and then you're happy that you can read a little bit of a head uh, in the slides. So sometimes it switches around a bit, at least for me. So the second tip is that uh, you should show, not uh, write. Uh, have all your text written on your slides may make you feel more comfortable, but it doesn't help the audience. Think about how uh, that what holds your attention in a presentation. Most people like hearing stories, seeing interesting findings in the forms of graphs or meaningful pictures, and being guided through a slide with thoughtful animations. We don't get much from walls of text. Sure, that's um, the next level as well, not to be reliant too much on the slide. 
Um, but the next tip is about preparation. Uh, prepare. Telling the story of your research requires preparation. Design your visuals carefully and practice your speech and transitions. Find a friend audience uh, or friendly audience for rehearsals to discover what works and what doesn't. Being well prepared means you will have the time to tell your story and that will help you reduce stress considerably. Yeah, it's... Um, my poor girlfriend has to listen to my talks. <laughs> um, and, you know, especially I uh, did it quite a bit with the uh, Explain Like I'm 5 ZFS talk, was actually trying to make sure that even though doesn't really use ZFS and knows a bit about it just from listening to me yammer on about it for the last five years, um, but that the I wasn't using words that people wouldn't know and things like that. And the last uh, tip of uh, the day, I guess, learn from others, but find your own style. Take preparation from the, or inspiration actually, uh, from the presentations you like to improve your style, experimenting with new approaches to the extent you feel comfortable. When you want to try something new, rehearse with supervisors or colleagues and ask for feedback. Yep, always good to uh, uh, prepared and um, interested in experimenting, I would uh, would say. Uh, yeah, uh, and learning from others and finding your own style. I've definitely seen people that have given really good talks and wanted, it's like, I want to be like that. Like um, <laughs> last VBSDCon, the 2017 one, uh, John Anderson gave a, a really engaging talk about uh, oblivious sandboxing, which is, you know, not necessarily the easiest topic to give an interesting talk about. But yeah, he delivered it well. And uh, at least it was memorable enough so that you remember it. Yeah, if you have other tips uh, about presentations or uh, things you want to uh, tell us about your presentation experience, send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we may uh, cover it in a future episode. So next, something more for the hardware uh, uh, geeks out there. Uh, not a review of the 7th generation X1 Carbon. So, not a review. Yeah, I think we read this already, actually. Did we? But this is not not a review. <laughs> yeah, in a previous episode. Yes. Uh, but I remember the story about buying it at Costco and then it turned out to be a newer generation and so the Wi-Fi didn't work. Oh, okay. Uh, but it's extra interesting uh, with more context now, uh, having just heard uh, Aaron Poffenberger's talk about his laptop uh, at VBSDCon. Yeah, he has special considerations he needs to take uh, into consideration. So that's why he's not taking this. But yeah, so he's... he's doing a more stripped-down comparison of the T530S to the X1 Carbon and looking at ports, whereas the X1 Carbon 7th generation gives you two USB-C, two USB-A, the docking station, the headphones, an SD card, and a SIM slot. A more traditional computer, you got USB ports, a display port, the docking station, a VGA connector, Ethernet, SD card, SIM card, etc. So yes, the X1 Carbon you end up without even an HDMI port, uh, meaning you're going to end up with a lot of dongles. Not a fan of that. That's why I like like uh, my X270 as opposed to something like an X1 Carbon. It's a little bit thicker, but you get all the ports. Yeah, that's a consideration many people are doing. Yeah, okay, so that's this. And the next thing is that FreeBSD meets Linux at the Open Source Summit. Yeah, uh, so this is a, a video um, from the Linux or the Open Source Summit uh, in San Diego, 
and has uh, an interview here with Deb Goodkin from the FreeBSD Foundation. It's about in a half hour. There's quite a bit in it. And they talk about open source and FreeBSD. Yeah, so that's something you should definitely watch. Mm -hmm. uh, there is uh, also an article we found about QMU VM escape. Yes, so breaking out of a VM and getting access to the host. Oh, that sounds serious. Yes, uh, there's a pointer miscalculation in the network backend for QMU. The bug is triggered when large IPv4 fragment packets are reassembled for processing, uh, and the, the bug was found by reading the code. Aye. So there are two parts to the networking in QMU. There's the virtual network device that is provided by the guest, like the PCI network card. And then there's the network backend that interacts with that emulated network card and puts packets into the host's network. So you know, in the guest, you have a virtual network card, and when you write packets to it, then it goes into the network backend, which turns those back into something that the host can deal with. By default, QMU will create a slurp user, inter uh, user network backend and an appropriate virtual network device for the guest, like an E1000 PCIe card. Uh, so with the slurp networking, you translate the uh, packets from the host into just sockets on, or so packets in the guest into sockets on the host so that QMU just makes the connection that the guest was trying to make or whatever. Oh. So IP fragmentation is an IP process that breaks packets into smaller pieces uh, because different types of networks can only handle packets of a certain size. Uh, so that the resulting pieces can pass through links with a smaller maximum transmission unit. So frames on the wire are limited in size so that really big packets can't steal all the time. You know, if you think back to when networks were less than 10 megabits, trying to send a 64 kilobyte packet could take, you know, a significant chunk of, of milliseconds even. And you don't want that one packet that keeps the whole network busy for too long, causing everybody else's messages to be delayed. So they limit the size of each uh, transmission so that other people will get a chance to, to talk on the wire in between your big messages. Or by breaking your message up into small, you will timeshare more fairly. I see. Uh, and so there's they talk about the different bits. Uh, the flags field in an IP fragment, uh, bit zero is always zero. Uh, bit one is uh, the don't fragment flag. So if it's zero, it means you can fragment the packet. If it's one, it means don't fragment it. If it doesn't make it, you need to drop it. And then the second bit is more fragments, which is one if there's more fragments after this and zero if it's the last one. For the NAT translation, if the incoming packet is fragmented, uh, they should be reassembled before they are edited and retransmitted. This reassembly is done by the IP reass function, which reassembles them. Uh, the IP contains the current IP packet data, and FP is the link to the fragmented packets. And you can see, so the bug is the calculation of the variable delta. The code assumes that the first fragmented packet will not be allocated in an external buffer, mxt. The calculation q minus uh, mdat is valid when the packet data is inside mdat because uh, Q will be inside that MDAT. But Q is a structure containing a link list of fragments and packet data. So otherwise, if the external buffer was allocated, then Q will be inside the external buffer and the calculation of delta will be wrong. So they're just subtracting uh, one pointer from another. And uh, in some cases, 
one of those pointers will be from somewhere else and will give you wildly wrong number. Later, the newly calculated pointer is converted into that IP structure and the values are modified. Due to the wrong calculation of the delta, that structure will be pointing to incorrect location and the IP source and IP destination can be used to write controlled data into the calculated location. This may also crash QMU if the calculated location is an unmapped area in memory. So now that we have the bug, we can exploit it. Uh, if we control the delta variable, we will be able to write controlled data relative to that um, external buffer. Um, for that, we need precise control over the heap. Um, so we need leaks to bypass any ASLR that might exist. There is no useful function pointers on the heap to get code execution. Uh, we have to get an arbitrary write. So let's look at how heap objects are allocated in Slurp. Block of code here. The uh, mget, mfree, minimum, and mconcat um, are wrappers for handling dynamic memory allocation. When new packets uh, arrive, new mbuff objects are allocated. And if the mdat is sufficient for storing the packet data, then it's used. Otherwise, we make a new external buffer uh, is allocated with the mink, and the data is copied into it. But if the incoming packet is fragmented, then the new mbuff object is used to store uh, those packets until the fragments arrive. Uh, when the next part arrives, they're then enqueued and put into this list. This gives us uh, a good primitive to allocate controlled chunks uh, on the heap. Uh, a few things to keep in mind is that for every packet, we have uh, an mbuff will be allocated. And if it is the first fragment, then another mbuff will be allocated uh, for the fragment queue. We have some more example code here. Uh, you can use this to spray the heap so that the subsequent allocations will be taken from the top chunk, which gives us a predictable heap state. So now to get uh, controlled write on the heap, now that we can control the heap, we can see how we can use the bug to overwrite something useful. So we start with a pointer to the next item in the fragment list. Then it calculates the delta by subtracting that pointer, or by taking the value of the pointer to the next item and subtracting the beginning of the list. And then we set that value. So assuming that your heap looks like this, you end up with um, the pointer Q at the top of the heap, a bunch of padding, and then down here we have that external data that the pointer to where we're going to store the data. So now delta will be have a value of negative the amount of padding. And this can be added with the m external pointer. And we can write to that offset controlling this padding uh, and being able to control the delta. So now when all the fragments arrive, they're concatenated to m buff object with the m cat function. And then the m increment function calls realloc. Uh, returns the same chunk if it can accommodate the requested size. So even after the reassembly of the packets, we can get the same mext buffer uh, for the first packet. So now that externally allocated buffer will be allocated from the first uh, fragment packet, and the Q pointer will be pointing inside that buffer. And then with an arbitrary write, we can just mem copy from m data plus m length. Uh, into this new pointer data and uh, 
it will overwrite the m length field of the object. Since there is no check in the mcat function, we can use the m length to get arbitrary writes, write more data than the pointer holds. So we're pointing to a memory uh, and we're saying, well, that normally only holds 670 bytes. We're going to write a bunch more to it so that we can overwrite the neighboring bits of memory. Um, and so by sending a packet with the ID 0x dead and the more fragments bit set, and then send a packet with the ID 0x cafe and the more fragment bit set, uh, that will trigger the bug to overwrite uh, the m length of the 0x cafe packet so that the data plus the length points to the 0x dead's uh, m data segment. Now we send packet uh, with ID 0x cafe and the more fragment bit unset trigger reassembly, right? Because now once we have one with it not set, it means that's the end of the list of fragments. And that will overwrite the 0x dead packets data with the target address. Then we send packet with 0x dead with the more fragment bit set to zero, and that will write the contents of this packet into that mData region. Uh, and now we've written arbitrary location of memory. And they go on to explain more of it and uh, have a video at the end of it working. Um, but they say, by creating a fake QMU timer with a callback um, as the system and opaque to the arguments, and then basically overwriting the main loop toggle entry with a fake one, and then you can run code. I think they should patch that, yeah. Uh, it's possible this is already fixed, I imagine, before they posted it, but... Yeah, probably to give them a heads up. Because it has a CVE number and everything, so they did the, the process. Uh, definitely good to know about that, and uh, uh, hopefully they fix that. Um, so next we have porting Wine to AMD64 on NetBSD, the third evaluation report. Yeah, so this will be the final report from the Google Summer of Code project. And that is um, for the progress they made during the third coding period. And, ah, so this is for uh, Wine on AMD64. Wine uh, 4.4, which has been released in March 2019, is working fine on AMD64 and i386, uh, they write, on the NetBSD block. Uh, they have been able to use a script uh, as a workaround for a problem of letting LD library path, uh, or setting that, and the patch for setting the guard size to zero and hence precluding wine from sec faulting uh, got upstreamed and can be found in the link there. Uh, they've updated the package to the latest development version of wine, uh, which is wine 4.13, which is uh, which came out on August 2019. And they have added support for the wine package source packages to run tests and using make tests. And at the time of writing, they are failing. Uh, they've also noticed a uh, fail on Linux uh, on non-package source environments and hence will require further investigation. Initially, they were disabled owing to package source setting fortify underscore source, which is a macro that provides support for detecting buffer overflows. In package source, the work in progress uh, slash wine packages, they honor the package source underscore use underscore fortify variable, passing the fortify source macro accordingly. Programs compiled with Fortify source substitute wrappers for commonly used libc functions that don't do bounce checking regularly, but could uh, in some cases. Wine, uncon uh, Wine unconditionally disables that via their configure scripts because for some platforms that triggered false positives in the past. However, in their experience, no false positives were found. So they ran Wine 
413, but that threw uh, a long list of errors. That is a long list. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's scrolling a bit. Um, but then they have an, uh, a section here running programs on Wine. You can find obligatory screenshots of Wine 4 or 413 on AMD64 and i386 on the article if you find that in our show notes. Yeah, I'm running a fancy editor, uh, yeah, professional text slash hex editor. And then they have playing uh, Space Cadet Pinball. Ah, good old days. Uh, <laughs> so they also provide uh, instructions how to run Wine on NetBSD AMD64. Uh, you need to compile the kernel with user underscore, underscore LDT, install that kernel, uh, clone their working progress repo, and then... Yeah, run make install for either 4.4 or 4.3 versions of Wine, and then run Wine and then your applications. For example, Notepad. Always wanted to have Notepad on NetBSD. Uh, their future plans include that the Wine requires the kernel option user underscore LDT to be able to run 32-bit applications on AMD64, uh, facilitated by World of Warcraft, is that 64-bit? Yeah. No, that's Windows on Windows 64. Oh, right. <laughs> Too bad. Okay, so Windows on Windows 64-bit. And presently, this feature isn't enabled by default in NetBSD, and hence, the kernel has to be compiled with user underscore LDT enabled. Uh, it will work on getting the tests, or they will work to run tests to pass, and finding a better approach to deal with LD library path issues. And in addition to that, they shall work on incorporating a NetBSD VM uh, to wine test bot infrastructure so they can preclude wine from getting out of shape on that BSD in the future. Yes, that's a very important thing, Is um, especially for the BSDs, is getting our OSs integrated into the test infrastructures of other projects um, so that their code is automatically tested on the latest BSD so that when they make a change and it turns out that breaks BSD, they find out about it immediately uh, from their test bots instead of, you know, after a couple of months, they release a new version and after a couple more months, we port it to BSD and then we tell them, hey, your new version doesn't work properly because you did some Linux only thing or something. Uh, if it's six or eight months later, they're like, I don't remember writing that code. I I've moved on. But if we tell them within a couple of days, then there's a good chance they will fix it before they go too far down that path. Yeah, so we're not uh, playing the catch-up game. Uh, of course, in addition to getting it set up the first time, means that you know the BSD projects still have to maintain those and keep those working because you know if it keeps giving false positives or breaking, they're just going to turn the BSD one off. Yeah, so that's their uh, report on the plans or for their efforts, which were quite successful on porting that BSD, uh, oh, oh, wine on that BSD this way. Very cool. Yes, and thanks to Google for another successful Google Summer of Code project. Okay, and last but not least in our list of items in the Beastie Bits is OpenBSD has disabled uh, DOH, which is DNS over HTTPS, uh, by default in Firefox. So this stirred some controversy on uh, when the, once the information got out that this uh, is in the newest Firefox. But OpenBSD was quick to f uh, commit a small fix but significant change to the Firefox port. Yeah, so the, in the options they they include an extra file called all-openbsd.js which overrides some of the default preferences and uh, now you as the user can still override this to whatever value you want but it means that the default uh is now not to use dns over https and tell uh cloudflare about every website you're going to 
a lot of people are uh, upset by this and uh, try to disable that or want to have that disabled or at least have the option to disable it. Okay, so OpenBSD has uh, put an end to that at least or disabled it by default. So people can make sure to use the latest Firefox version that includes that without having to worry about their browsing uh, history or current browsing actions being recorded. It's time for the feedback and questions this week, which is a bit special this time, uh, as you might uh, discover in a little while. Uh, first of all, you should keep sending us questions, otherwise this section will be very empty. Um, uh, all these things should be sent to feedback at bsdnow.tv, otherwise, as said, we will be very bored at this point. Yes, and I've seen a comments from a few people. If you sent us something and we've not used it on the show, uh, just reply to the original email to bring it back to the top of our inbox. Uh, that might make a big difference. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes it falls through the cracks. Or the spam filter eats it or who knows. Uh, we usually try to get everything in the um, show notes because um, that's what this section lives for. And a lot of people are watching BSC now specifically for those. Okay, the first one is Rainis uh, with a galley with UFI question. Uh, goes like this. Hello, BSD Now team. I have been happily listening to your show for a couple of years and I have a bad habit of playing around with computers. <laughs> I found BSD Now shows to some extent guilty of that fact, but I have included BSD systems in my daily use. Okay, oh, that's good to hear. Uh, now I use a Dell XPS 13 as my daily machine where FreeBSD 12.0 lives together with Windows 10, Ubuntu, OpenBSD and other operating systems of my current whims. Uh, this has played out nicely, but uh, by using UEFI boot, where each operating system has its EFI boot variable set pointing to the respective OS loader in ESP partitions. I find ZFS a modern and featureful file system, which is useful even on a laptop. I also sleep a bit better in, uh, if my stuff is encrypted, so for my FreeBSD installation I ended up using UEFI boot with unencrypted boot pool and a Zroot pool backed by Galley encrypted GBT partitions. Or one partition. Uh, it all worked great, but as I continued listening to your show and reading invaluable FreeBSD slash ZFS books by Michael W. Lucas and Alan Jude, I started realizing that I'm missing boot environments in my life. Yep. Unfortunately, I was not able to integrate them in my setup, so when playing around with FreeBSD Current, I had to brutally delete GPT partition records for my 12.0 release so that UEFI Loader does not see them and boots current from a new partition instead. That was not elegant. Uh, you shouldn't have had to do that, but okay. It's a bit drastic, yeah. Um, I knew that for some time that Alan had done a great job, good, yeah, at making ZFS boot environments work with Galley, but that did not support UEFI, and I was too scared to try out legacy BIOS booting as it required installing protective MBR into the first disk sector and had no idea how my other operating systems inhabited the laptop would react. Then he found out about Aaron McCorkle's work on FreeBSD EFI Galley support, and uh, found Eric's blog post um, and uh, how his setup is described there. But unfortunately, the code had been removed from there. So he did not have any other option than to have some beer for courage and try legacy boot bias booting. I found a blog by Joseph McGrone, our uh, faithful and busy uh, core secretary, by the way. And, uh, oh, I, translate, I transferred data from a boot pool to Zroot, enabled galley boot flag on the partition backing Zroot, destroyed the boot pool and its backing partition, and installed the boot code to the first disk sector and to the newly created FreeBSD boot partition. 
so contrary to his fears, everything worked great and I could start playing around with boot environments. In order to check that my other operating systems were still alive, I had to enable UEFI booting again, but then accidentally booted my previous FreeBSD UEFI loader. To my surprise, the machine did not crash and I was presented with a friendly prompt. So the galley passphrase, please. Um, I could not believe that. So after logging in, I ran sysctl mugdap boot.boot method uh, to see that UEFI booting worked and also EFI boot manager spitted out all my boot order entries. Still not believing, I started in-depth online searches to find out the mailing list thread uh, where they pointed out that UEFI plus galley plus ZFS plus boot environments work as finalized already years ago or a year ago. So, how ignorant of me. I regret of not doing proper research for the beginning. Uh, in order not to repeat my mistakes, it would be great if you could shout out to all the listeners of the show that UEFI, Galley, plus ZFS, plus boot environments is a thing in FreeBSD. And a good thing. Uh, one should be following mailing lists regularly and not be afraid of breaking things. I suppose we maybe didn't do a great job of telling everybody that that just works now. <laughs> um, and a couple of things. So, Joseph's instructions are very useful. Um, and they, you don't need to switch to BIOS boot for it. Um, the protective MBR thing is not specific to BSD. Every GPT partition disk has that protective MBR. That's there specifically so that Windows XP won't offer to format the disk because it doesn't contain an MBR. Yeah. So that's, that's the main reason why that's a thing. Uh, but it's part of the spec. So anyway, yes. Um, starting with, 11.1, I think, and definitely FreeBSD 12.0. Uh, yeah, so yeah. anyway, FreeBSD 12.0 has support for UEFI booting fully encrypted disks with no unencrypted partitions. All you have, uh, the only thing that's unencrypted is the actual bootstrap, which is like 100 kilobytes of code. So you only have that 512 kilobyte partition for the boot code is the only unencrypted data on your machine. And that's not very critical because it doesn't include any user yeah. data. Uh, in the future, we might have signing for that or something, but for now, uh, it means all it does is uh, ask for the password, use that to derive the master key, uh, and use that to decrypt the disk enough to start the loader. The loader is then passed that uh, same encryption key or user key uses it to read the disk and load the kernel and then the kernel is passed the key again and the kernel uses that to um, read the disk and mount it as a root file system yeah so sometimes we don't advertise our great features uh, but uh, it's been rectified this way yes uh, and thank you in the end to Ian um, yes Ian Lepore uh, for helping with the conversion um, to get the EFI bits working. Uh, he actually did the work to make my BIOS booting stuff work on ARM, and in the process, just made it generic enough that it works on all the architectures, um, including EFI. And if Colin Percival hadn't remembered his 16-bit uh, ARM, or 16-bit uh, assembler, assembly? Yeah, then... yeah, we would still not have this. So again, huge thanks, Colin, uh, for those couple of hours of effort uh, fixed the, uh, the MBR code. And of course, to you as well. So these were the shout outs we have to give. And also, I guess, uh, thanks to Thomas Soom for doing a huge amounts of work on the 
FreeBSD boot code as porting it to Illumos. And uh, it's also Thomas's fault, I guess, uh, that we have the menu in EFI. Oh, yes. So our original version of EFI didn't have the serial emulation stuff or any way to display the menu. And so the only reason you can actually use boot environments on EFI is because of Thomas's work. Um, Patrick Kelsey also helped uh, fix one of the last bugs in that code recently. Yeah, a lot of people were involved and we all can benefit from their work now. Okay, uh, next question is from Mason about beeping. Uh, of course, you know what this means. Uh, starts with, I'm curious how beeping is handled in FreeBSD. On my ThinkPad T420, running FreeBSD 12, when I wake from sleep or when something beeps on the console or inside X, the beep is almost painfully loud. In X, the exit command seems not to work as advertised, and this probably wouldn't help with the ACPI events in, my, in any case. Uh, so if I set kern.vt.enable underscore bell equals zero, then that suppresses the bell in X, but not when I sleep or wake. Setting hwsyscons.bell uh, seems not to be relevant when I'm running VT. But I don't want to suppress it, I just want to make it quieter. I definitely heard that painfully loud beep when you unsuspend a machine uh, at the conference from a number of people that have T420s and X220s and other ones. And it's the reason why you will find my X270 muted most of the time. The next feedback we're getting into is a bunch more feedback to someone's question like this, uh, but slightly different that came in. Uh, and we got a whole bunch of responses and we're going to read them in a minute. Hopefully we can do the same thing here uh, and pass that on to, I, I know Steve Wills is one of the developers that, uh, got the beep of death during the conference <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, was like, I wish I knew how to change that. So yes, being able to control that uh, to make it quieter and or disable it and control the bell again. Maybe I don't want to turn it off completely. I just want it to be not this ear splitting like beep. Um, yeah. <laughs> so hopefully, uh, sadly, I don't know the answer, but hopefully somebody out there has solved this and uh, just doesn't know that nobody else knows how to solve it and will quickly share that knowledge with us. Yeah, that's the idea. And uh, that's why we have this segment. Yeah, if, uh, again, if you have a solution for that or making it uh, just a little bit tiny, quieter, uh, more pleasing, pleasant to the ears, whatever, uh, send this to feedback at bsdnado.tv so we can answer this question properly. Or um, maybe you find the time to code a solution, then uh, also be happy to cover that. So now we go into this section of feedback, which covers one topic, and that is switching terminals, the virtual terminals from the command line. Because switching with the keys, your regular switching combinations are is working, of course, but um, using the command line is much cooler. And three people we have here that have solutions for us in this regard the first one is DJ, and uh, he writes also a bit about um, how he enjoyed our episode 311 rundown of our favorite gear and plans to buy some of those recommendations. Okay, so that's nice. We're not getting any kind of affiliate links or affiliate money from that. We just um, linked what we liked. Yeah, if, if you buy it from Amazon, use smile.amazon.com and uh, direct your charity donation to the FreeBSD Foundation. Yeah, for example, that is uh, one goal do and uh, they get a bit of money from that without you having to pay some extra money. Okay, um, responding to Mark's question from episode 312 about changing virtual terminals on the FreeBSD virtual console and without using function keys, I have always done 
it with the print screen slash system request a key. Uh, this is mapped by default to advanced TV, virtual TTYs in one direction. However, even if you don't have a print screen sys request key uh, or prefer a different one, the console keys can be remapped using KBD control on FreeBSD. Not unexpectedly, Dan Langell has written a post about this on the FreeBSD diary, and we link that, of course. From September 20th, 2002. <laughs> oh, it's been a while. Okay, so this is not a new thing. It's been around for a while. Um, Mark has also mentioned Linux with CHVT, so change virtual terminal. I was not aware of that on any platform. I would also be curious about BSD-oriented solutions, if they exist. For reference, the Linux virtual console, or at least on every disco, disc, distro tried so far, uh, also does not need CHVT or function keys. Using left or right arrow keys while holding the alt key generally works in both directions. And in the last several major versions of FreeBSD, the virtual console has undergone some changes that seem to tie in with X and seem to have broken some legacy utilities. Uh, the new console seems to have some powerful new functionality to rival Linux frame buffer consoles. Uh, but I'm not aware of much documentation for FreeBSD consoles, especially the newer generations. NetBSD may have similar things in the works. I've never thought about the console that deeply to need much documentation it's like text spits out on it and i type things into it and then i leave but yeah these questions prove that there's actually uh the need for that and so yeah this uh provides some insight how you could do that uh, from one user at least and uh this might be referring also back to episode 315 the chat room points out as well but uh we are not done yet with feedback other people have written in about this ben for example about chvt and ben writes hi team bsd now during episode 312 around uh an hour and three minutes you were wondering if someone would make a chvt for FreeBSD. so ben previously did make uh, a port sysutil chvt uh maintained that okay thanks for that uh, but then was reminded by Jay Bike about the functionality already exists in base using vid control and therefore uh, done F Danfe, I think, yeah, pointed or suggested to remove the port. On FreeBSD, you can implement CHVT via a shell script. Uh, so they made the, the little shell script, although we saw in yesterday's ep or last week's episode, uh, somebody had also written one in C. Ah, yes, I remember. Uh, you can just copy and paste the code and uh, rip compile it. So vid control is a thing that works. Okay, thanks for that. And uh, the last who wrote in about this, or so far at least, is Harry and has more CHVT uh, feedback. Uh, so Harry writes, on the last episode, Mark asked about switching virtual terminals without function keys. And I guess Mark is doing this right away in any way possible now. Uh, one way to do this is with the command vid control dash lowercase s and then capital and then the key or the, the number for the VTI number to switch to, so one or two or three or how many you might have. Or zero to go back to the first one and so on. Uh, yes, so interesting also to see the kind of uh, cargo culting effect here, <laughs> yeah. where because that one post on the forums likely got it from somewhere else even, uh, mentioned having the redirect in from dev TTY zero, um, you see that that got copy and pasted everywhere where it doesn't seem to actually be required. Now, I'm guessing that running vidcontrol dash s the number switches whichever console you're on to the new number, uh, whereas the other one seems to switch the number zero. So you might see a difference where the, the redirect might be useful if you're 
switching not the screen you're on, but trying to switch some other screen around or something. Uh, but it's just interesting to see the kind of the copy and paste nature of some of this. <laughs> People assuming that some of the extra bits of the command are required when it doesn't seem that they actually are. Yeah. So check the man page or the help output. So yeah, just vidcontrol-sx uh, is easy to understand. Whereas once you put that redirect in there and the other stuff, it's like, what is all that doing again? And it's extra <laughs> typing work. You just want to switch to a different terminal real quick and then... Yeah. Uh, let's hope we have sufficiently answered this question now and definitely um, remember this, these keystrokes or these uh, commands now so that you can use them when necessary. Yes, and thanks to everyone who wrote in with answers. It's very helpful. It's the reason why we have a feedback section. It's not just so we can answer the questions, but it's so that you can. So if you happen to have the answer about the beeping on the Lenovo's during unsuspended and so on, be super helpful if you could write in with the answer. And don't just assume somebody else will write in with the answer, because that's how we end up with nobody writing in the answer. And we're perfectly happy if three people write in the answer. <laughs> yeah, at least. <laughs> yeah, so that wraps up our quest for uh, this terminal switching, but continues the quest with the uh, so finding the solution for the beeping. But it, for now, wraps up this week's episode of BSD Now. Thank you for listening in, as always, and stay tuned for our next episode, of course, because then we'll probably report a bit about EuroBSDCon. Yes, a bit. Yes.